Hello and welcome to the Enterprise Endpoint Experts E-Cubed podcast. With me today is our co-host, Amy Casto. Hey, Amy. Hey, Bill. How's it going? Good, good. And our guest today is a global cybersecurity expert, Sammy. Good morning, Sammy. Hey, good morning. How are you? Good, good. I didn't pronounce your last name because I didn't want to get pronunciation wrong. How do we pronounce your last name? Laiho. Laiho. Okay. Great. That's Great. Um, that's always the that's always the question. I've had to write it up on different boards in conferences because people always want to know how it's pronounced. But usually they say Laiho, which just sounds a bit weird. But <laughs> but yeah, it's Laiho. <laughs> Okay, good. Yeah, I think in my head I was not coming up with the right pronunciation, so I'm glad I asked. Um, can you maybe introduce yourself a little bit? Tell us uh, a little bit about where you work and what you do, and uh, just a, a little background for people who aren't familiar with, with your work. Yeah, sure. So, um, as said, my name is Sami Laiho. I'm from Finland. I'm a Microsoft MVP in the core operating system. I travel a bit more than 200 days a year and um, last year flew a few hours more than a British Airways pilot so I'm mostly in the air but I'm uh, traveling all around the world teaching Windows internals and security and also consulting basically anything related to IT. I've been doing this since 1996, been an MVP for about seven years I guess. Wow. Okay, fabulous. And um, if people want to learn, like read your blogging or learn more about you or possibly hire you for something, where can they go to, to learn more about you? So if you're interested in me as a speaker or doing keynotes and stuff like that, then probably samilaiho.com would be the number one place. Just just my personal branding page. And then I got a win-foo.com website which houses my um, online training and houses my instructor-led training courses that I deliver so that's the best place for uh, information on those and then I got a lot of uh, online courses on plural side as well okay wonderful and Amy said that whenever you uh, <clears throat> speak at a conference you you often uh, start by teaching people a word in Finnish so would you mind teaching us a word in Finnish <laughs> Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> I, I, I was um, I was trying to figure out something really, really weird. And as I'm always told that the Finnish words or Finnish words are so long and difficult, I thought I'd choose a short one. So uh, there's a word called there's a word which is how. It's um, H, A A Y Ö, which I mean half of those letters you don't have on a US keyboard. Yeah. Um, and it means and it means a wedding night so it's a lot easier than wedding night because it's only five letters and how is a lot easier than wedding night anyway so nice okay so trying to tell tell people that just learn finnish it makes your life so much easier that is that's simpler you've got <laughs> so speaking of weird thing what's up with hobby horsing in finland this is a big <laughs> thing for you guys right <laughs> You have no idea how disturbing and weird sports we have here. But, um, <laughs> but uh, hobby horsing is probably the newest one of them. Uh, yeah, really. There's like um, last summer, I even I was amazed. There was uh, uh, the biggest park in Helsinki had about twenty to thirty thousand people getting together and um, 
too, like equestrian on hobby horses. So it's, it's wow. got tens and tens of thousands of, even I had to buy my both daughters a hobby horse. Just like a few days after I had started going on Twitter saying that you don't believe what I've seen in Finland. It honestly took like two days and I was already buying hobby horses for my girls as well. But as someone said, it's a lot cheaper hobby than having a real horse for both girls. So <laughs> That is well, a strong upside. <laughs> as a lifetime equestrian, I don't know if I can allow you to settle on that as your your final decision for your, your girls and their interacting with horses, but it's a good start for sure. So. <laughs> I, I've, been, I've been riding for a long time, so I know what you talk about. So. All right, so now you have to explain it. Tell me what is your background with horses? Um, it's always been all about the horses. I always tell people it's all about the horses. So you, I started, I started uh, riding when I was maybe about nine or ten because all the girls went to the stables all the time, <laughs> and then I stopped riding at the age of like fifteen or sixteen because boys were bullying me about it. So it's always been about the horses. Okay, that's awesome. Hey, before we dive into, I, there's a lot of hot security topics we want to cover today. Before we dive into that, I just want to ask real quickly, what is with Microsoft Edge? Microsoft built a new browser that they say is much more secure, and it's still maybe, I, I, I just got a new Surface Book 2, which I love, beautiful hardware. Um, I wasn't immediately enamored with Edge when I tried using it for a while, but um, but it, it's maybe worth sticking with because it has stronger security. What is What makes it more secure? Well, the main difference between Edge and the other browsers is that Edge is a universal app, and universal apps in Windows are contained into a very protected environment, even as if you would be running it as a normal instance of Edge, it would be very well protected against any changes in the operating system. So, for example, the registry is not used directly, but there is a um, application-specific registry loaded only for Edge, which means that if Edge would do something bad, it would only affect that part of the registry and not the real system registry. Um, Universal Apps by design can't run as admin, which means that you are running with low privileges. Um, the Internet Explorer or Chrome can run at a lower integrity level, which makes them more secure. But with Edge, that application itself has uh, SIDs and has the ability to control whether it can access your webcams, whether it can access your file system, whether it can access your intranet or internet connections. So this, it's a like it's more about the fact that it's a universal app. Uh, on the other hand, if you're looking at the newest versions of Edge, then Edge also introduces the best ever sandboxing. I'm not a big fan of Edge, but I will, from a security perspective, I'll have to say that the sandboxing that Edge deploys is the best that there is in the industry. So it is a uh, it opens a separate container running on Windows, and you can use Edge in this mode that called, that's called application card, a Windows Defender application card, and that opens up a non-trusted website in a separate container, which means like you have two user modes on top of your Windows kernel mode. So, so it is a totally isolated environment. And because it's based on virtualization, it's basically based on Hyper-V technology, it's really difficult for any third party to actually come up with a 
as good or as performant kind of sandboxing that they're doing. So it's still a work in progress, but I'm 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 really really hoping that Edge gets a lot better, a lot faster. For me, the problem is mainly it's currently still Edge is tied to the build numbers of Windows 10, which means that if I'm not willing to upgrade Windows 10, then I'm not getting the new version of Edge either, which means that I'm like, I that's the only thing I kind of miss about having a separate browser. Okay, great. Thank you. That, that was really helpful. That's a lot of information about a browser. And speaking of browsers and what you can do with them, I think often a lot of people go out and download things that maybe they shouldn't. And something that I noticed in the news yesterday was a BitTorrent application vulnerability. And I didn't know if you had a chance to read up on this yet and if you thought that organization should be concerned. I had a chance to look up, <laughs> look it up, but I have to say that whenever you send me like <laughs> questions, I'm always like, "What is this?" I haven't even had a chance. I didn't even hear about it until you asked me, but I had to, of course, go and look it up. Um, it's actually a Google Project Zero, like most of the latest findings that there have been, all the big vulnerabilities that seem to all be found by Google's Project Zero, and uh, it is not that big of a deal because there was um, um, the concern about if it would be affecting things that are actually considered more legal than what BitTorrents are mostly used for, which are usually not that legal. So I'd say um, the idea anyway is that you can remotely execute malicious functions or code inside of a user who has a BitTorrent and you can potentially take control of those computers as well. Uh, the bug has been found like 45 days ago. They normally don't announce them until 90 days, but now they, at the time when Google's Project Zero found it, they instantly had a ready-made patch that would have just needed to be applied. And the uh, people building that BitTorrent project were not willing to patch it. And that's why it's kind of like, they don't normally operate this way. It's actually been only 45 days since they found it. Um, it seems to what I what I could dig up from it. The idea is that you can make the you can abuse a um, management interface so that you you can use a web browser to manage your BitTorrent transfers, and they're abusing this web browser user interface part and. Um, Apparently works on both Windows and Linux, and it all at least works on Chrome and Firefox. Of what I could figure out, it is the technical stuff was a little bit harder to first find until I actually found the real Google Project Zero uh, article on it, and um, it seems to be a quite old attack itself. They're called domain name system rebinding attacks, where basically you point the BitTorrent client or daemon to a uh, IP address that you compromised, and then you suddenly change the DNS entries to point to the loopback address, 127001, which means you can kind of like inject something from the malicious web site and then point it at yourself, making your computer do what you want, or in this case, the victim's computer to do what they want. Um, and they, the sadly, what they did say was that it's just the first 
of a few different remote code execution flaws that they have found in these torrent clients. So we are only waiting for the next ones to be published after they go out of these um, 90 day periods. Very interesting. So kind of on the same idea of sharing data, I mean, mm -hmm. BitTorrent is one thing and peer-to-peer -peer is another. Um, one of the biggest parts of understanding Windows 10 is understanding how to get the size of, of the content of the feature updates um, out mm -hmm. in an organization. Do you think that there's any um, security things that we need to be worried about with delivery optimization or uh, branch cache or peer cache? It seems not, but um, it's a bit difficult to know until they announce the next few ones that they were mentioning. So the current remote code execution flaw that they announced, that should not be at least affecting delivery optimization of Windows 10 at all. So I don't know. Um, it seems that it should not affect uh, branch caching either. So, but the only thing I'm... Uh, 99% sure is that the delivery optimization is not impacted at least against the, at least as long as we're talking about the flaw that they now announced, but the next few that they're mentioning, then then I can know. But they, I, I don't think people should be, like if, if you're really interested, there's, uh, I took the, um, actually found the CVE code, the CVE-2018-5702, if you go and Google that up, you can go to the GitHub site and try and you can find uh, information on how to patch it and stuff like that. Um, but if you think about a an enterprise using these kinds of technologies, that should not be a big concern because these cases where you, you would use these clients that they're talking about, those would be things that you would want to prevent anyway inside of an enterprise, which means that whitelisting like AppLocker will solve this like almost any other security issue currently. Okay, awesome. And then I think we read the same article, just we're waiting for, for fixes for for the BitTorrent vulnerability itself. Do you, do you agree with that? Yeah. Okay. And let's move on to Meltdown and Spectre. Uh, <clears throat> so those came out and they were big news because they affected <laughs> almost every computer that exists. Um, so before we talk about the specifics of it, this is, can you maybe explain the context uh, of it, like the evolution of microprocessors to the point where this happened? If I understand correctly, and you can provide a deeper insight, basically people didn't, uh, didn't realize that this was a thing. They have this, uh, basically we're speeding up processors through speculative execution, and <clears throat> nobody really thought that this was gonna be used as a way to hack, and so they were kind of cranking up performance, and they were very excited about that, and they thought they were doing something good, and this went on for many years before somebody said, hey, actually, is that, is that a fair assessment? I think it is a fair assessment. There's um, first of all, this was like this was a very um, interesting thing to happen. I mean, timing-wise, because I was actually in the Maldives diving, looking at beautiful rays and and 
sharks and all that stuff and had barely no internet connection at all for two weeks and that like after a week i started getting like phone calls of people like sammy like wake up explain the world has ex- <laughs> world has exploded you you why aren't you reacting it's like what's happening like nothing can be that dramatic and then i then i um i had to kind of like find a i actually had to hack a wireless hp printer to get an internet connection but that's a story for another time but uh um, I, i got some sort of an online connection and then i had um uh like started figuring out what what's happening and uh, yeah we we do have to agree that it's a really really huge thing um as you said it's quite it's quite uh, obvious that no one intended to do anything malicious no one intended this to make any bad things happen um you could say that like half of these kind of like faults that were found now are um are not concerning amd and it's kind of like like many people say it's maybe still worth having this rather than not having it because if you think about like the last 10 years probably you both remember that like maybe a decade ago you would have still had to think whether you would like to take an amd or an intel processor if you wanted to have a very performant computer right nowadays for the for the past decade you haven't made those you've never had this that you would think if amd would be the choice for a high performance computer so intel has taken leaps and they've been very very fast now you could kind of like cut the corners here a little bit and say that intel started to guess a little bit more than amd did this this will have implications on a lot of things because we will also have like governments that are asking whether they should change everything to amd because amd doesn't do guesswork as much and doesn't cause this um what about like the whole Amazon or Azure, they are running mostly on Intel, and they're gonna. This is gonna be like freaking expensive to them because they have to give more performance to their end users to meet the requirements or the set levels that they've promised, and that's gonna. This will cost a lot, but the it's like processors started to evolve in a way you had a processor that could just barely do what we needed it to do and then at some point like maybe a decade ago or a few decades ago what started to happen was that the cpu could do so much stuff that it was just silly that it was 99 of the time idling all the time so they tried to make the cpu do things with these idle times that it has that would benefit us whether it would whether whether it would kind of like guess correct or not it tried to guess things up front because it had idle time to do it um it was just a very very good thing to happen performance wise and and honestly like this has been under like microsoft said that they knew this from about something like june or july uh this year um since then it's been under a very very strict nda like our our mvp ndas are like child's play compared to these ndas they're like it's kind of i I would come i although it's um a bit different um system but i would kind of compare it to the one that we had a few years ago when they found this huge hole in cisco's code that was basically running all the dns servers that are the root servers themselves it was fixed silently 
so that the internet would honestly not break down because it would have broken down if it wasn't like totally top secret and silently fixed before anyone disclosed it. Luckily found again by the good people. And this one, at least based on all knowledge that we currently have, this one has not been used by any malicious activity before it was announced, which again, um, again, a Google project. So uh, we yeah. are I'm just like super happy that it was found by the good guys rather than the bad guys. For sure. And the risk on this, well, obviously there is a hole. And even if it's tiny, it has to be addressed. But it sounds like it's not a huge exploit. You're able to read bits of memory from programs as they're being executed speculatively. You're not able to run through and read everything a program's got in memory in any kind of a, an orderly fashion, right? You're just kind of like, hoping if you're if you're a cyber attacker you're hoping for something good to show up in this little pocket of speculative execution that gets populated with contents as it's running its operations is that right yeah there's kind of like um there's two different um the two main attacks that we're talking about are meltdown and specter and meltdown is quite simple and meltdown is a flaw so meltdown is quite easy to fix it can be fixed by a software patch and it should be fixed and everyone knows that that's a mistake it, that this was not supposed to happen so the ideology in this is that when it speculatively fetches something there's an if statement or something that might have different kinds of end results it tries to guess everything and i i, I tried to explain this to a friend of mine and i came up with this uh, example of uh, if, if if i'm if I'm going to go home, I'm now at the office, and if I'm going to go home, um, I would need to check my wife's calendar because I need to know if my wife's home, then when I'm home, I need to be wearing clothes. And if my wife is not home, then I'm going to be wearing my boxers only. But um, the problem is that if I'm checking my wife's calendar, the system already starts to guesswork what's going to happen after that. But now the problem was that we don't know if I'm allowed to read my wife's calendar or not. So what the processor does, it starts to guess what's going to happen, but it doesn't do any access control checking on whether you are actually allowed to do it. Now, that happens afterwards, and then the CPU just discards that content from the memory. Now, the problem in everything related to these things is that this all actually ends up in the CPU's first layer cache. So now, although it discards this information let's say i wasn't allowed to read my wife's calendar so everything that is in the calendar needs to now be discarded and the cpu subconscious like they said in many articles the subconscious of uh, the cpu already knows about the contents of the calendar although i'm not supposed to know and the cpu does a fair job and doesn't tell me about the contents of that calendar but then the problem is now that that thing gets in the cache and we can use yeah, another so it's channel. like when your kids find out their Christmas presents and they try and pretend that they didn't know and, and they try to act mm -hmm. surprised and interesting. Okay, yeah. interesting. So yeah. Gashing is, is the problem, but it's all, also the meltdown is that's that is a problem, meaning that's also a fault. So you just fix it with an OS patch. So basically, you just have an extra step of checking the permissions before you use the data. And that's why everyone's talking about the performance hit. So if, if you talk if, the, if if you talk about Spectre, that's 
way more complicated but sadly spectra uses the same mechanisms but it's sadly something that is by design in the operating system uh, in the cpu so spectra can't be fixed by a batch and the biggest issue with spectra is that the spectra threat where we use a something called branch history buffer which is used to have in the cpu is guessworking things in the cache that it's not supposed to do and everyone anyone honestly didn't understand that it would do it like this but it guess it guesses things that are not related to it at all and in specter's case the problem is that those could be in a different vm those could be in a different container which means azure aws containers everything's vulnerable the meltdown is only about escaping from user mode to kernel mode or escaping from a user mode process to another user mode process but the specter is the super dangerous one because honestly if you go to bug bounty program on microsoft.com that's 150 instantly for you if you can escape a vm because it's considered to be the worst thing for security that could ever happen okay Okay, well, that puts it in perspective. And <clears throat> is there that much of a performance slowdown to the fix? Uh, there was speculation that repairing a combination of microcode in most cases, I guess an optional for AMD in some cases, and uh, then operating system updates would cause significant slowdowns. What I'm hearing from people is that it's kind of negligible. What's, what are you seeing? I think it's, um, well, First of all, if I'm, I try to ask around as much as possible and see my own environments, and I'd say that the computers that are like one, two-year-old computers that we have, it's it's not really noticeable. We're talking about milliseconds, and it's really hard to uh, notice. Um, people have been with older computers, like Haswell computers, um, let's say three, four, five-year-old computers. They see they at, at least they notice there's a difference. So. It's noticeable. Um, people have said that there's dramatic um, decrease in the performance of SSDs, for example. But now that I spoke to quite many guys who really know how to do this performance uh, testing, they said that it might also be that all the testing applications that we use, none of them understand the new way of operating in the world of having this fixed. So I'm not really trusting on those because they say it's like 40%, 60%. Um, the ones that we already know is long SQL Server report services runs, for example. Uh, they might be running reports that take two days to run that procedure. And now it's taking like, instead of two days, it's taking like three days. So so I, I think I believe the biggest impact will be on the server side. On client side, new computers, I, I just tweeted out today, like... Um, um, I think there was a really good quote. I was just reading through the uh, documents on the different kinds of caches that we have. And there was this um, Jim Gray's quote on one of those saying that if, if the CPU registers are how long it takes you to fetch data from your brain, then going to the disk is the equivalent of fetching data from Pluto. So it's also the, it's really hard to understand on kind of, kind of like what we're talking about here. Uh, when we're talking about uh, CPU getting slower, doing a few things less per second, we forget that 
it does things in nanosecond grade and also that it does billions and billions of operations per second. So it's a bit hard to put into like scale. Yeah. Right, okay. So right. Okay. one of the things that I'm noticing is that every day I'm starting to wake up with a bit more and more panic than ever before. And it's not just because I have a toddler who now thinks for himself and acts for himself. It's actually <laughs> it's actually the technology world. Uh, last year we had WannaCry, Bad Rabbit, Petya, not Petya, all these you know, hurry up and panic situations. And then now we have Meltdown and Spectre. And it just seems like there's more and more vulnerabilities coming out. You just Thank goodness I'm I'm not in an admin role anymore. I, I wouldn't want that headache that, that admins are having, just feeling like they're just reacting to everything now. But do you think that companies are learning their lessons from outbreaks like this? I think what they're learning now is that they have to also understand how to upgrade firmware and drivers, which is something that they usually totally neglect and don't do at all. So... Um, I think that's something that people learned with Spectre and um, kind of the current firmware or hardware level issues that we have. But then if we think about WannaCry, um, I think if you look at Gartner or NIST or NATO, for example, requires AppLocker from everyone who works with NATO systems right now. Um, Gardner NIST, they say that whitelisting is the most important security measure to implement. And if you think about WannaCry, not Petya, Petya, all of those, none of those will go through AppLocker. So I'd say like whitelisting is, well, it's easy to say because I, I my consulting work, I yesterday I was in Norway doing whitelisting project. Uh, just before I left on my holiday, I was in um, Austria doing it for a atomic energy association i've been doing it for different militaries in europe so i'd say like they learned their lesson meaning that everyone now understands that they need whitelisting but it's only enforced by these um, high security environments so I, I i think people are at least wherever i go they're willing to talk about it they're like willing to take this on the table and start talking about whether they should actually do it until now they've only been saying like yeah yeah for sure maybe someday but not 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 us not right now and now people are actually calling me and projects that few years ago would not cut even to start are now actually running so i yeah. hope they're learning it's funny to see the attitude that um that the decision makers take on these having strategies on on how you update firmware. Um, I've moved on from roles because the IT director said, "Absolutely, we don't have any time to update BIOS. Don't don't yeah. ever touch it." You know, but you you open up a support case with the hardware vendor or the software vendor, mm. and they say, "Hey, you know, we don't support this driver, but you can't get the driver because you're not on the la the latest BIOS mm -hmm. version." And you know, they say, "Oh, that's not good enough. Escalate, escalate." Um, but then certainly I've worked for other companies who who understood, um, you know, you, you have to stay up to date with everything ever, both software and, and firmware patches. Um, so it's, it's just quite a, a landscape to look at. Oh, oh, it is. And it's like, um, um, I think most of my customers still, until they come to my courses, at least, they always, many of them have the idea that like UEFI or BIOS, upgrades are needed because you need a new feature supported like you need to support 
like um, bigger cluster sizes for your disks or something like that. And they totally forget that the when the CPU itself has a fault, like now we have a fault in the CPU, the only way to patch that is with a microcode patch. And those microcode patches are in those UEFI and BIOS upgrades. So they forgot forget that those, you can't go really and like weld your CPU to be fixed. Like you, the only way to fix it is to actually run those BIOS and UEFI patches. So people don't really often, they don't understand that those are like the service packs for your CPU. <clears throat> Great. And hey, you mentioned um, app blocker and whitelisting as a huge, a huge factor in securing an enterprise is there anything else i, I realize that you, there's way too many things to list entirely but uh are, can you think of maybe one or two other things that might be very very high on the list that companies could do we've talked about updating firmware and we've talked about whitelisting yes this is my favorite topic so, <laughs> okay good <laughs> so first of all um remember whitelisting is super easy Everyone thinks it's hard. It's very easy. If you do whitelisting, you might add a one. You might add one line in your whitelist like every month. The other guys who use the old traditional stuff like antivirus, they need to add one million lines per day because there's one million new malware samples found every day for Windows only. About eighty, uh, about thirty-eight thousand for Android. So, like people thought. People don't like whitelisting because they tried it in 2005 and they thought it was super difficult because they would list all their binaries with hash values and it was impossible to manage. Nowadays we have, I got an, I got an environment that has 550,000 users, um, 35,000 computers, um, about 78 different functions inside of the company. So hospitals, schools, kindergartens, uh, universities, so uh, parliament, like everything is in that city system and they have 78 different rules. So if you think about administering a list of 78 rules compared to 1 million new blacklist rules every day, you can easily say that whitelisting is like dead easy compared wow. to doing the old one. Um, so whitelisting is very high on the uh, list. The other one is getting rid of admin rights. So my company is still the most consulting we do is getting rid of end-user admin rights. Um, I will always tell this, 1993 NT3.1 user guide says that there is no security in Windows if you run a local admin. So people, it's taking a while, but maybe people are finally starting to get it. Um, uh, you have to kind of like glue all this in together with BitLocker. So people forget, people think that BitLocker is needed for um, data encryption. And then they tell me that we don't have enough important data to warrant for the use of BitLocker. But BitLocker is not that important for data encryption. It's more important for integrity of your operating system. It's kind of the glue that just, you put epochs on all of these good things that you put in place and that kind of glues it in and keeps it intact. So BitLocker is needed on every single box in the world. Get rid of all end user admin rights, implement whitelisting, educate your end users to stop reusing passwords. That's probably honestly still the biggest way people get into systems is that people just 
use phishing or people fall into phishing traps and they use same passwords that they use in their own systems at their work and people get or their systems get compromised because of that. Okay, <clears throat> that's great. That's great. Thank you. So, Amy, I know you were kind of curious about um, a couple of things related to uh, antivirus. And actually, yeah, why don't we why don't we ask you this question, Sammy? Antivirus is that important? Um, and does it matter which vendor you use? So you've just said it's not nearly as important as whitelisting. Is it, is it that important to keep your antivirus up to date? And does it matter which vendor you choose? Well, a few years ago, Netflix, for example, publicly stated that they got rid of antivirus totally. So we do have huge environments that don't use antivirus at all uh, in the way we know antivirus, which is this uh, like fingerprint-based detection reactive um, antivirus. Um, Defender's engine is totally fine. So um, if, if, if you would ask me as a friend or if you would ask me as a colleague, or a relative that like, well, I'm going to buy a new computer for my personal use. What do I use? I'd say if you have Windows 7 on your machine, you use um, Security Essentials. If you have Windows 10, you run Defender. I would never buy anything else. The engine is just fine. The only thing that you lack from Defender is monitoring and alerting. So in a bigger environment, you need to be able to monitor what's happening. You need to get alerts when someone gets infected. And that's that's something that you have to kind of like, if you have Splunk or something that you can use to kind of do this for, bit, for Defender, then you could do it with just Defender. If you have System Center Endpoint Protection that will just use Defender and add these to it. Um, Third-party antivirus, why not? I'm not. I don't really want to buy third-party antivirus unless it's like a second-generation um, antivirus that's more a cloud service-based thing that uses heuristics and uh, computer power to try to figure out what's happening based on behaviors rather than fingerprints. But every time someone asks me, do I need my antivirus? I always say, I think you should still have it, keep it running. Um, it's a good extra protection. It's not your primary protection by far, but it is a good extra protection. If you compare Symantec and like Microsoft's Defender, there's next week, maybe we'll see numbers that Symantec can protect 98% of those threats and Defender could only do like 96% or maybe only like 85%. But then on the other hand, in Symantec's case, that would have meant that if it's 98%, that means 20,000 pieces of malware got through under the radar every day. Wow. So you don't really compare them in the way you did before. It's funny that you say that Defender is sufficient because of most of my time spent as an admin was cursing the Microsoft built-in protection. And, and it was just always seen as a joke until recently. Um, and mm -hmm. really, even third-party antivirus, we we just always understood. You know, you you pay for your antivirus solution. You never pick Microsoft's, but you also always add something on it like Malwarebytes because it, it was never enough until recently. 
And it wasn't until I ended up having to build a data center of my own um, as part of, of my role and I have to manage it. And I noticed a huge performance hit on using the old way of thinking that I can't use mm -hmm. the built-in Microsoft stuff, I have to use third-party stuff. First of all, it's very expensive. And second, mm -hmm. I just wondered, why does nothing work? Why is everything so slow? I, I bought very expensive hardware. What, what's going on mm -hmm. here? And it took me uh, just getting rid of my old thinking and, and ripping everything out and just going with the built-in stuff to finally realize, hey, like Microsoft gets it. And it's this is great. <laughs> mm -hmm. It is. I totally agree. All right, so let's um, let's switch a little bit. I'm going to quit picking your brain. I, I want to ask you about kind of a big topic that I'm noticing on Twitter, and this mm -hmm. is the whole InfoSec and CyberSec, and what are they? Are they the same? Are they different? And how do you get into it? Um, I think that might depend a bit on who you ask. Those are like InfoSec and CyberSec are terms that are used in different contexts, different ways, and by different people in different ways. Uh, the the original difference is that InfoSec was about preventing um, like unauthorized access or use, disruption, modification, inspection, recording, or destroying, disclosing, using information, but it was all about information. Now, cybersecurity usually includes like controlling physical access um so the hardware level not just the software and the information um it talks about network access it talks about this more like um data or code injection stuff done by exploit kits and things like that so it's kind of a cybersecurity is a lot bigger front and i would put infosec as a like a subcategory of cybersecurity but okay. but it's still it's something that it depends on who you ask all right so obviously you you don't just wake up one day knowing everything you have to start somewhere would you recommend your trainings as a way to get started or, or do you think that people should have a, a basic knowledge before they step into your training courses my training course is for the operating system internals i i teach a windows uh troubleshooting course and a Windows Advanced troubleshooting course, which used to be called Windows Internals. But although I think everyone should take it, people found it too intimidating, the name. So I've just changed it to Advanced Troubleshooting. But um, knowing how the operating system works is the fundamental knowledge you need to be able to succeed in your cybersecurity um, career. So absolutely, you should take my courses. I'd say if you want to get into my courses, you would need to know like basics of operating systems, how files, folders work, at least uh, some sort of an idea on networks, what are clients, servers, switches, stuff like this. Uh, basically, any kid under the age of 10 knows enough to come to my courses. The adults are a bit more problematic. But, but... <laughs> so do you have an age limit for registration? Can I send my four-year-old son? You, 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 can, you can absolutely send. I, I just I did an AppLocker webinar like three, four weeks ago, and it was on a day when I was supposed to take my kid to work. It was this take your kid to work day in Finland. So uh, I took my 
uh, eight-year-old daughter with me and then I went through half of the course and during lunch I just opened the webcam and told showed everyone that this is Lumi my eight-year-old daughter she's been doing all the demos on device cards in now <laughs> <laughs> it's not even far from the truth <laughs> That's awesome. all right so where do I go to sign up for these for these classes is it anywhere or is it just on your blog that I can uh, go, to, go to win food.com slash ILT instructor led training. That, okay. That's uh, there's all the information on the classes and the different countries they're hosted in. I'm also the uh, conference chair for Tech Mentor Conference, which is in Redmond next after next summer in August and in Orlando in November, December time frame. Um, that's where you can find me in US more. I'm more than willing to come to any company to teach this stuff. I'm actually flying to South Dakota in, a, in some time to teach this. So I'll, I'm, I'm all around, but I'm but you but for the public classes, you can find the information on my website. Great. Well, I hope your trip to South Dakota is not in the middle of winter because <laughs> it can get a little chilly hey, around there. Hey, I'm hey, I'm from Finland. Good point. Good point. <laughs> You're not intimidated by our no. weather winters. <laughs> okay, this is the most uh, this is the the most important question of the entire podcast. Are you swift on security? I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. I suppose. <laughs> All right, Sammy. So you're known for starting your trainings with some finish with Sammy. I am known for ending podcasts with a would you rather. So it is that time of day to ask you, would you rather? And I'm going to build up um, some framework on this. You are Sammy, and nothing about your life is changing other than what I'm about to ask you. So you're still traveling all over the place. You're still doing all your engagements. You're still you. You ready for it? Yeah. Would you rather never, ever have internet access again or never be able to take an airplane anywhere again? Oh my God! <laughs> it hurts for me just hearing this question. <laughs> wow, I would. I would never take an airplane anymore because there's going to be a hyperloop between every country in a case, <laughs> and I would use internet in that hyperloop. Yes. I would. I would. Yeah. I, I'd. I'd rather be without. That's. That, that's. Like, I. I just got an electric car, and I ha didn't have a car for a year. And everyone tells me all the time, like, Sammy, you're so like, so nice, so ecological. And I was like, you should see my carbon footprint. That's. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I'd better be uh, flying a little less. Fair point. Question. Fair point. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today. This has been just a whole, a whole bunch of really, really great information. Can't thank you enough for being with us today, Sammy. Thank you very much for having me. It was a blast. Okay. Thanks, Amy. Thanks, Sammy. Everybody have a fabulous rest of the day. Bye. Bye, guys. Bye-bye.